to the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. So he's, the name of the church is Ephesus. He refers to himself as the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. What are the seven stars? The messengers. What are the golden lampstands? They are the churches. You can, that's defined by itself at the end of chapter 1. So it's saying, I hold the messengers and I walk among the churches. My presence is with the churches. That's me. He says, I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name, have not grown weary. Awesome. Yet I hold this against you. Uh Uh-oh. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. Now, here's something you need to star, highlight, tattoo to your forehead, whatever you need to do. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Jesus will not hang around a loveless church. That's a warning. Those are Jesus' words, not mine. I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Where are the lampstands place? With him. Around him, in his presence. That's what it's all about, is him. Boy, it's sad when you get into a church that's dead, that's loveless, and it removes, you know, that he removes his presence from there. It's just, it's just sad, and it's all about the business. And what about the people? What about, you know, the broken lives and all these things that are going on? But you have this against you. You hate the, the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. If you remember in that, that handout I gave you, I talked a little about the Nicolaitans. Nico meaning the priesthood. Laitans meaning the laity, the regular, old, the regular folks in, in the body, you know? So there's this idea that it could be the priesthood ruling over the common people. Jesus says, I don't, I don't like that. I died to abolish that. Actually, I'm the priest. You come to me. You don't have to go to Matt to get to God. You go right to him through the blood of Jesus. Amen? None of this ruling over, none of this hierarchy. Remember I showed you the picture of, of Jesus' uh, uh, hierarchy, his, his model, his business model for the church. He was washing feet. The leaders are the servants. That's the way it should be. I should be serving you in the Word of God and these things. The elders, we need to be serving you. We serve one another. The greatest in the kingdom is what? The least. That's who we are. We serve one another. We see you need, we, we go for it. We help each other out. This is what the Lord has called. And so he's speaking to this church. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans. Now, notice, after he tells them the hard news, he encourages them again. He knows how discouraged they must be about that. You've left your first love. I thought that's what we were all about, Right? What if Jesus came to this church and he said, I mean, we got this letter from the Apostle, Paul, uh, Apostle John in the day, and he says, you know, you guys are great at all these things, but the one thing is you've left your first love. Do you know how discouraged we'd be? Oh, I thought we loved one another, you know? Downhearted. He says, but this you have against you, and he kind of picks you up. Oh, okay. So you, so you still like me? You know? Yeah, I love you. 
It's so interesting as we get to the last church, which is the apostate church, it's the only one that I see that he mentions love. The apostate church, he says, uh, to those I love, I rebuke or I chasten or something like that. I was just reading that. And so Jesus is awesome and encouraging us when we fail. But whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Whoever is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And so again, notice that he reveals himself as the one who holds the stars in his hand and is among the lampstands. Why did he say that? Because they're in danger of losing that presence. He wants them to know that. They've left their first love. I am the reason why we're here. Now to the church of Smyrna. Right. These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. Jesus identifies himself as the first and the last, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, as we see several times in, in, in the scripture there. It's funny that the, this term, alpha and omega, beginning and end, is synonymous. God uses this, the Father God, God the Father, uses that term of himself. And as we've been talking with some friends here, the Jehovah's Witnesses, they love to say, oh yeah, this is Jehovah God, the beginning and the end, the first and last. He is the Alpha and the Omega. The only problem is when you get to this little part, when he says, you know, these are the words of him who are the first and last, who died and came to life again. When did Jehovah die? When did, you know, only Jesus died, right? Yeah, Jesus is God. These, these subtle ways that the Lord is showing us the deity of Jesus Christ. It's, it's, it's pretty awesome how the Lord does that. Clearly, uh, we have a problem if, if you're thinking that uh, Jesus is not God. A little thing I wanted to show you, um, kind of a side note. You remember the, the, the uh, thing above the cross, the letter above the cross? It said, Jesus, the Nazarite, and the King of the Jews. It was kind of interesting. There's, there's a little thought out there. Why was, why were the Pharisees so ticked off and wanted him to change the way it was said? No, he said it was the king of the Jews. It's very interesting that there's an acrostic, Y-H-V-H, Jehovah. You, re, you read from right to left in Hebrew. So very on the cross, Y-H-V-H, Jehovah, right above his name. <laughs> That's pretty wild, isn't it? Oh yeah, that's right there, Y-H-W-H. Y's are V's, so. So, the, so he's speaking to, the wor- uh, to him who was dead and is alive. I love that about the Lord. The first and last, remember, he holds the keys of death in his hand. And he tells them, well, really quickly. Uh, well, we'll get there in just a second. It says, and he goes, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. Afflictions or tribulations here—it's—it's it's sometimes. How many of you have a different version than in the NIV? And what does yours say? Does it say afflictions, or does it say tribulations? Tribulations, tribulations right? Well, that could be if you're reading through Revelation, and you read tribulations. Could that be confusing? Because you automatically kind of thinking—is this like the tribulation, or is it tribulation? So, the writers of the NIV rightfully put afflicted. So to, to kind of get us to where we're not confused, that he's not talking about the tribulation, he's talking about affliction. The affliction that they're having, Jesus knows their affliction. That word affliction means to be crushed, to be pressed. 
You know what you do with grapes? You crush them. And so he's saying, I I know what it's like to be pressed. I know what it's like to be crushed. You know what Gethsemane means? The wine press. And what happens when you crush grapes? The wine flows out. What happened to Jesus? He was crushed and then the blood flowed out. He knows their afflictions. This is a very uh, poor church. He says, I know your afflictions and, and and your poverty. There's two words for poverty in the Greek. Uh, there's there's one that means you, you kind of ha- ha- you're you're poor. You have very limited resources and stuff. And then there's one you're abst- absolutely destitute. You just have nothing. That's what he's referring to here. I know that you are poor. I know your afflictions. How you're being pressed and you're crushed and you have absolutely nothing. I know that. I know what you're going through. Isn't that good to know that God knows? I love this. Over and over again, he says, I know your good works. I know your sufferings. I know what you're going through. Think about it. Right now in your life, Lord Jesus knows. He knows what you're going through. He knows your failures. He knows your successes. He knows what you need. He loves you. And you might feel like you're being crushed right now. You might feel like you're being persecuted. That why? Am I, am I all alone in this, you know? Whatever it might be. Jesus knows. He knows your tribulations. Jesus knew their afflictions and he knew their poverty. Their poverty. It says, yet they were what? They were rich. Flip over to Revelation chapter 3, 14 real quickly. Or look over, depending on where your Bibles are. Revelation 3, verse 14. And again, I was mentioning the church of Laodicea. These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. Now, this is not a glowing review. I wish that you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say that I am what? I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, and poor. You are absolutely destitute. You are totally, you have nothing spiritually. You are bankrupt. You have nothing. You think that you're rich, but you're actually poor. You know what? Materialism is not a good indicator of of a spiritual relationship with the Lord. You can be really, really poor and be really, really rich in the Lord. You can also be really, really poor and just a, a moron. You know what I mean? You can be very rich and have tons and be benevolent in the kingdom and be rich towards God. You can also be very rich and be very poor like this church that said they're rich and they trusted in their possessions as opposed to the Lord. So it's a very, very 
you know, chilling thing to think that the, that the church, this church was materially rich and was spiritually poor, and the church, Smyrna, was materially poor and was spiritually rich. Riches are a poor indicator of our spiritual condition. They are a poor indicator. It doesn't mean the Lord doesn't bless us. But Smyrna was a church that was destitute. They were rich spiritually. You know the, what the word Smyrna means? Like I wrote it down. It, mean, it means, it kind of has a Hebrew root to it, which means myrrh, which means death. So if you remember, the wise men who were actually magi, how many wise men were there? Oh, wait. No, there aren't. Christmas, qu- Christmas quiz. Doesn't say. It just says there were three gifts. <laughs> It doesn't say the angels sing either. <laughs> it says they say. I'm just playing with you. Jesus. Oh, you're right. Seven. Okay, we're back to the normal. But the three gifts, what were they? Gold? Right. What do you think those represent? Yeah, prophet, priest, and king. But the death as well, the death, the myrrh representing his death. It's interesting in Isaiah 60, it talks about that in the millennium, in that thousand-year reign of Christ, they're going to be bringing him gold and frankincense and no, myrrh. Why not? No more death. Pretty cool. But I find it very interesting that Jesus refers to himself as the one who is living is yet alive. This was the persecuted church. They were very poor. They were afflicted. They were being persecuted by the Jews. As we'll read in just a second, they were getting smacked around. They had nothing. They were hurting. They were hurting. Jesus reveals himself as the one who was living and was dead. He identifies with them in 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 their weakness. It's beautiful how the Lord does that. So Smyrna was a church that was destitute, yet were they rich. How can this apply to us as the church today? How can this apply to you personally? You know, one thing is that often our vision of ourselves is inaccurate. You ever notice that? This is why we don't trust in our own wisdom, but upon God's word. Remember the word of God is like a double-edged sword? It's alive. Hebrews 4, 4.12 says, For the word of God is alive and it's active and it's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of the soul and the spirits and the joints and the merit. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. The word of God gets down to what it's all about. So you want to know what's going on in your own heart. You open this thing up and you read it. And what it says, if you don't like it, you're wrong. It has the ability to cut to tell you about what it's about. It also has the ability to encourage and to heal and to point and direct. As 2 Timothy uh, 3, 14-17, it says, But as for you, speaking to Timothy, Paul's exhorting his young protege there. It says, Continue what you've learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you have learned it and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus And then the one we all read, all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting and straightening and training, right? And righteousness, so that the servant of God, that's us, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. It's to take those broken broken bones and straighten them out. 
to put us back on the right path. It's to speak to our inner man and, say, and correct what's wrong in there. The Word of God. Don't go by what people say. But notice, this church was poor and they were probably looking at their possessions and thinking, oh man, we must be doing something wrong here. And God say, no, you're rich. And the church that was rich, what was going on? They were going, oh, hey, we're, 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 we're doing great with God. Everything is wonderful. He's saying, no, you're poor. So we want to be focused on what he says about us. Not what we say. And he goes on, he says, I know about the, sl- the, the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. This is most likely referring to Jews who were persecuting the Christians. Remember that the early persecutions of the church began at the hands of the Romans or the Jews? The Jews. You remember that? Christians, they, they came out of Judaism. They were a sect of Judaism. What happened is these guys said yes to Jesus and they said, their family said, you're cut off. You can no longer be with us. And in the religious Jewish community, what do you think that did with their ability to get jobs, their ability to get income? These people came poor for the kingdom. They gave it all up to follow the Lord and so they banded together and that's what you see in Acts chapter 2. They, they gave what they saw they needed. Another brother and sister who was hurting, they pulled their resources together and helped each other out. That's the Spirit led. The Jews continued to follow the law and thought that because they were Jews, they were born Jews. Have you, have you ever heard an American? What are you? you know, are, you a, are you a Christian? Of course, I'm an American. It's like, wait a second. Just because you're an American doesn't mean you're a Christian. Obviously, our president thinks differently, but I'm sorry about that. I shouldn't say that. But anyways, there are things that we look at and we say, because we go to church, we're Christians. Because I was raised in a Christian family, I'm a Christian. Because I'm an American, I'm a Christian. Because, you know, my, my so-and-so that I know is, is religious, then I'm, I'm okay. The Jews were, were falling upon this. And Jesus is saying, hey, they say that they're Jews. And if you go into Romans chapter 2, this is very, very important. Romans chapter 2, a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly. Nor is circumcision merely an uh, uh, outward. I'm sorry. Nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. Verse twenty nine. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not the written code. Such a person's praise is not from the other people, but from God. In other words, you think you have all these outward actions that make you make you a Jew, make you a Christian, so to speak. They aren't. It's what God's done in your spirit that makes you a Christian. Are you born again? These people are saying they're Jews and then they're, they're attacking the Christians because they're not doing, jumping through all these hoops. You see, the Jews were attacking the Jewish Christians in Smyrna. And so he's, he's speaking to them. And Jesus says, I know these people who says they're Jews, but they're not Jews. They're, from the, they're actually the children of Satan. They're from the synagogue of Satan. They're, they're not our, your brothers and sisters. Don't listen to them. You know, Jesus, he loves to say it how it is. I know about those who slander you and say they are Jews and are not. They're synagogue of Satan. And it says, don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you. And you will suffer, suffer persecution for ten days. Don't be afraid about what, what you're going to suffer. 
You remember those promises, 2 Timothy 3.12, everyone who wants to live godly and godly life in Christ Jesus will be what? Persecuted. It says don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of the pain. Don't be afraid. Fear, it's so interesting. The people who are cast into hell, the very first thing is the fearful. Fear is the opposite of faith. God wants to remove that from us. He wants us to, to look at him and to trust in him in our circumstances, no matter what you're going through. I tell you, the devil will put some of you into prison to test you and will suffer, and you will suffer persecution ten, for 10 days. 10 days is not so bad. Well, <laughs> one of those deals. How many of you have been through a 10-day trial, right? I don't care if it's a literal 10-day or a figurative 10-day. 10 days stinks. There's different thoughts on this. Genesis and other places talk about 10 as the number of testing and trials, so a period of time. Uh, it could be that the 10, the, 10, uh, the 10 Caesars that would follow and would persecute the church for a, a, a period of time, starting from Nero and ending in, in Domitian. Uh, you know, 6 million Jews died between, uh, I think, 100 and 250, not Jews, uh, Christians, sorry, uh, between... 100 and 250 A.D. That's a lot of our brothers and sisters. They were thrown to the lions. They were burned at the stake. <clears throat> you know, uh, Polycarp, he was the uh, bishop of Smyrna. He was the disciple of John writing this letter. He was tormented and was told, you know, was burned at the stake for, for holding fast to the Lord. I mean, some serious business. But notice who's behind it. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Satan's behind a lot of things. Notice Satan isn't busy with the non-believers. Who's he busy attacking? Those of you who are in the game. Those of you who are born again. I can't read in the New Testament where he's attacking the lost. I can read in the New Testament where he's attacking the chosen, the saved. He's trying to under, undermine our, our, our families, our marriages, our, our church, our belief systems. He's trying to get into your house and, and destroy things. He's trying to get into the church and mess things up. He doesn't want you to be effective. He doesn't want us to be out there doing what we're supposed to be doing. And for the large part, he's been pretty effective at it. You know? I mean, look at our nation. I don't see tons and tons and tons of people coming to, to the Lord, you know. But you go into the third world where, where there, there's poverty, where there's all these things and there's a lack of materialism and a focus on these things. And it's really interesting. You see the paradigm shift. People are coming to the Lord in droves. God's working miracles. Things are happening. I don't know. Something about the gospel and the poor. <coughs> That's a study for a different day. But Satan was behind the persecution. And that 10 days, a time of testing, it could be a Hebrew idiom, as I said, or it could be a, you know, the time of the Caesars, whatever it might be. But he says, in ending, be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Interesting, five crowns mentioned in Scripture. The incorru- incorruptible crown. It's the crown of self-denial, the crown <coughs> that awaits uh, then there's the crown of rejoicing for people who win people's souls. 
There's the crown of righteousness for the, those who love the return of Christ. There's the crown of life for those who endure trials. There's a crown of glory. It's the under-shepherd's crowd, those who teach and, and shepherd the word of uh, the people of God. In verse 11, Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. What's the second death? We'll talk about that next time. Um, We will. Why don't you go ahead and look at it this week? But last, if you could flip over to the very last part. Applying Jesus' letters. I just wrote down some application questions here. You can go over this week. How did this apply to the church in Smyrna? How did it apply to them locally? What were they going through? Secondly, how does this apply to Christ's community fellowship? How does this apply to us as a body of believers? Do we ever think like that? That we're connected. We're put here by God, intertwined for a reason. We are a body. How does this affect us? Personally, What's the Lord saying to you? What's He shown you? How has He commended you or exhorted you or encouraged you, you know? And prophetically, we see that the churches throughout the ages so far, we have Ephesus, the apostolic church, and we have Smyrna, the persecuted church. And so that's a little bit of historical fun. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for the letter to uh, Smyrna, Lord. And, And when I think of our brothers and sisters around the world who are suffering right now. Lord, it's massive. Father, more people in the last century have died, brothers and sisters have died than all the previous centuries combined, it's estimated. There's a lot of persecution going on. There's a lot of people who are really hurting and Lord that's just uh, globally and our brothers and sisters on the other side of the world we lift them up to you today we ask that you would meet them and comfort them with these these words that you are going to give them a crown help them to endure and persevere that you know what it's like to die but you also know what it's like to live I pray for this morning for our body. I pray for people who are hurting and who are suffering, who are going through tremendous seasons of poverty, poverty of spirit, Lord. Financial poverty, emotional poverty. Lord, that you would meet their needs. That we wouldn't look unto our resources, but look to you for everything. Pour out, Father, upon us. Wake us up, Lord, in areas that we need to be wakened. Encourage us where we need to be encouraged. Sharpen us, Lord. Give us the tools we need to change. We love you, Father. We thank you for this day. Amen.